Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Today, I'm going to talk to you about Paradise Lost. Now, Paradise Lost is not something probably hardly anybody has read, at least not on purpose. I think they used to assign it in high school, but from what I can tell from my students, this is not happening anymore. Paradise Lost is probably the greatest thing written in the English language, outside of the King James Bible, surely. But Paradise Lost is certainly the greatest poem written in the English language. And I will take you to the wall on that one, Producer Zach. Is uncontestable, uncontestable, incontestable, inconvertible, incontrovertible. Uh oh, rabbit hole. Paradise Lost is a poem written by John Milton. John Milton was a 17th century cat. He was a a small guy who had long flowing hair. They made fun of him at Cambridge and they called him the Lady of Cambridge. <laughs> so, you know, even if you're a genius, you always get knocked back a little bit. He was probably the most educated person in the English-speaking world, probably up until James Joyce, maybe also eventually C.S. Lewis. He was one of these people who had literally read everything in not just his own language, but was trained in a dozen other languages as well. Not only uh, the biblical languages, for example, Hebrew and Greek, but Aramaic, Syriac, and other obscure things that nobody except actually our pastor would know about anymore. John Milton was tutored at home by a pretty ambitious father who probably wrote him a little hard, but when he graduated from college, he famously thanked his father for not pushing him into a career or a trade because it allowed him to cultivate this ultimate sort of poetic career. It's difficult to do that these days unless you got some money. Milton didn't come from a really wealthy family. He just came from a family in which the father valued education above almost everything else. So he had the best tutors, the best languages, and then he went to one of the best schools, what we would call probably like a high school, which was St. Paul's. Now at the time, St. Paul's was famous for its teacher, who was famous as being one of the best Hebrew and Greek scholars of the time, and he was teaching these young guys the biblical languages, which is a pretty extraordinary thing. Now that guy is famous for having been John Milton's teacher. So everything kind of comes full circle. John Milton, born in 1608, he ends up being involved at the heart of English society when it is radically transformed during the middle of the 17th century, England undergoes what is called the English Civil War, in which the radical Puritans, of which one, Milton was one of those, um, basically kind of rose up against King Charles I and ultimately beheaded the king. Now, part of the reason that they did this is because King Charles I had suspended Parliament several times and was basically against sort of this kind of shared rule that England was supposed to be all about. And the radical Puritans basically saw God as the only only monarch, and everything in human government was artificial. And if it was artificial, that meant it was ridiculous for some guy who just happened to be born of some bloodline to rule over everybody else. And so the radical Puritans, or Calvinists usually, uh, but the radical Puritans in England at this time, they called them the roundheads. They had like bowl cuts. Not a, not a good look. Not a good look, producer Zach. 
they called them the roundheads because they were really simple and austere people, right? They're Puritans, so they wouldn't have Christmas trees at Christmas, for example, right? They keep things pretty straight-laced, but they were really hardcore. These are not like prudish, kind of wallflower, kind of wilting people. These are people who are like, let's behead the king. So Milton was this kind of radical Puritan, radical Protestant in that environment. King Charles I is sort of the... A bit of a, I don't know, how would you describe it? An exhibitionist. He's a bit of a, I mean, he really believed that he was God's ambassador on the earth, like an avatar, divine right king, right? Like, I, you can't remove me. You can't hurt me because I am God's man on the earth. And he believed in that. He believed his blood was of this special weighty kind of blood that had this pure divine rule behind it and that God would back his move. By the time they execute King Charles I, which really happened, it was a public execution, the people were gathered, and it said in some of the things that were written around the time, the people weren't even sure that you could do this. They thought that maybe as the executioner's sword or axe basically fell on the king's neck, it might just shatter. They didn't even know if you could execute the king because many of the people believed almost magically that the king, again, was God's emissary on the earth and really couldn't be harmed. So Charles was believed to potentially have like sort of magical properties or powers. When the axe fell and Charles the first head indeed comes off his body, it's said in the records that there was this groan that sort of erupted from the mass of people that were witnessing this execution. They they were many of them were against him. They think it was a good king or whatever. They just kind of couldn't believe that he was able to be beheaded. And so when his head was actually severed from his body, there was just this giant across like a wave of oh, there's this horrible sound that was described later on by people who had been there because nobody knew if this was even possible. They thought maybe this was something that would offend God. They thought maybe they were playing with something that was just not theirs to play with. Milton didn't think that at all. Milton thought this was their duty. He thought this was the necessity. He thought that Charles ruled in a bogus and a magical way that had nothing to do with God. It was completely artificial, and in fact, he called him a tyrant. And he would go on to be a part of this new government, which is this republic. I can't imagine England now, but England for this period of time was a republic. It was called the Commonwealth. Oliver Cromwell was the protectorate. And they, they had this kind of organized experiment of being a republic. And Milton was like at the center of these things. A lot of times people forget that. We think about poetry. We think about this is why we don't read poetry. We think about poetry. And poetry is like this sad kind of emotional thing written by someone in a closet who's just weeping. you know. And, and why would anybody even study poetry? And who the heck cares about poetry? And isn't that just what dumb people like Dave did to get a lot of student debt, spending thousands of dollars? to read poetry. We think of poetry as being this real private thing or something you put in a Hallmark card. But poetry in the 17th century, the 16th century, all the way back to, let's say, Homer, poetry is how you make arguments about how the world should work. Poetry is politics. Poetry is everything. Poetry is life. They used to, in school, they used to study and memorize the Odyssey and the Iliad as the manual for not only how to behave nobly, uh, how to think, how to speak well, but also how to build ships, how to basically do everything that Homer depicted there. It was basically like a handbook or a manual on life. It was their main curriculum in ancient Greece. And they were poems. They were epic poems, and they functioned as education. 
Like, how do you be educated? You memorize Homer. And so in the 17th century, it's no small thing for someone to be writing poetry. It's not just this discreet, off-to-the-side, private little thing that someone does because they're just into that sort of thing. Uh, This is something in which people would make the most important arguments about decisions of state, the most important argument about religion. They would make it in the form of poetry. So Milton, yes. Long hair, yes. The Lady of Christ Church, yes. All sorts of things about him being maybe not the strongest looking person in the world. Nonetheless, with his pen in hand, with his mind alive, with his education at his back, he was on fire. And he started at the center of this republic. He started to become ultimately like this secretary to the foreign office. So he ends up writing in Latin. He ends up writing in any number of languages because he knows them all. He ends up defending. Europe's freaked out. They're like, England just killed its king. Now all of a sudden, all the monarchs across Europe are terrified that people are going to start killing their king because apparently you can do that sort of thing. Remember, many of these monarchs kept their power because there was thought to be a divine aura or magic around them. They were thought to be uh, almost immortal, or at least not able to die before God himself allowed it, not certainly able to be overthrown by some revolt of commoners or whatever, even if those commoners were radical Protestants who weren't necessarily poor. This freaked out everybody in the rest of Europe. Uh, The same thing happens, obviously, during the American Revolution. Um, Everybody gets nervous that this is going to set a trend for revolutions and things like that. And then, of course, France happens, et cetera, et cetera. But at the time, Milton has to defend to all these kind of foreign powers. Regicide was an appropriate thing. Regicide just means the killing of a king. That it was a a necessity that the new government they had was stable. That he had to kind of make all these arguments in Latin to really important sort of diplomats. That this wasn't something England... It wasn't going to, the English Puritans were going to start running over to France and other places trying to kill their kings or their monarchs or anything like that. This was a closed in-house discussion with England trying to sort itself out as to the best way for society to be governed. So Milton is at the center of historical life, okay? He has this poetic mind. He has a, he has a kind of a history of having written some incredible poetry even up to his younger years when he is at the center of these things. And yet, he's writing in prose most often. He's writing pamphlets. He's writing tracts. He's writing things, as I said, kind of foreign uh, uh, secretary of state kind of office things, written in Latin to try to convince people of different things. He's, he's basically Cromwell's sort of right-hand man when it comes to this. He's like the brains inside of much of this, this Republican experiment. But the Republican experiment ultimately fails, and it fails in a remarkable way by, as you may expect those who were in charge of the commonwealth themselves beginning to behave like tyrants. And so in Milton's perspective, it's the most horrible betrayal of this grand experiment because it's like the snake eats its own tail. It's like this self-consuming thing where the commonwealth or the republic really falls because of those who are running the commonwealth or the republic, not because of itself or as a system it ought to have, but because those who had a little more power of governance were indeed corrupted by that power. He was horrified, but more importantly, he lost his job. Uh, He didn't lose his life, but all of a sudden now England flips after a decade of being a republic. 
to sort of being like, oh, well, sorry, we're just joking. We're going to be a monarchy again. And Charles I, the guy whose head got cut off, had a son whose head was not cut off, named Charles II, because monarchy. And Charles II all of a sudden now shows up, and he's like, I'm just going to be king again. And England's like, all right. And Milton's like, uh-oh. And a lot of people are executed. Cromwell, every, a lot of important people are executed. And there is this sort of uh, moment where Charles II's like, hey, what about that guy? And he's like pointing at Milton. He's like, didn't that guy like write a bunch of things in Latin about how great it was that they beheaded my dad? And people are like, oh, um, yeah. But something has happened to Milton in this time period that gives him slight pity. First, he's got a good friend named Andrew Marvel. Andrew Marvel's a brilliant poet, but he's also a really shrewd statesman. So he navigates getting out of the Commonwealth and getting into the new monarchy and being in the favor of the king. And Andrew Marvel says, oh, no, him? Him? That guy? Oh, he's this old guy. He, he's no threat to anybody. In fact, he's blind. Milton had fully lost his sight um, by 1652. At the age of 44, he was completely blind. And in part, Marvell sort of paints this picture that Milton is like, no threat to anybody. This guy? Are you sure it was this guy? He ends up getting him out of jail, and he ends up getting him off being punished at all. He's certainly not executed, and he's not even really placed under house arrest. He ends up getting him almost like a full pardon because Andrew Marvel basically argues that he is uh, powerless, and he's just this hes this doddering old blind man. You know, he's 44, but, you know, people didn't live that long at the time, so he's probably like, you know, 64 or something. Either way, Milton ends up in two exiles. The Commonwealth, the Republic has fallen. Uh, the kingship has been restored. Everything Milton believed politically has completely been dissolved and has actually gone back. It's even worse now because now it's like England tried that and they're not going to try it again. So his great dream of this England that would finally take its place and a reasonable way of leading the world and being a power in the world that like kind of governed by reason and by debate and all these things like the Roman Republic, you know, kind of Cicero's dream was Milton's dream. And now that dream is completely destroyed. But the other thing I said that leaves him as an exile or destroys him is the loss of his sight. And so this characterizes his later period. He writes Paradise Lost, as a blind poet who receives upwards of 30 lines in his sleep, wakes up in the morning and dictate, dictates them to an amanuensis, which is oftentimes his daughter. So he would go to sleep imagining or dreaming in like the terms of this poem, this great epic poem, Paradise Lost. And he would wake up and he, he can't see and he would wake up and he would have 25 to 30 lines of the richest of the most I mean Paradise Lost is like Everest it's it's the it is the greatest sort of achievement of English poetry and he dictated the entire thing from his mind uh, in the mornings usually um, upon waking up he was so like just soaked in this world. He was so deeply into this project. And I think in part because of his blindness and because of his exile from the things that were actually happening in the world that mattered. 
he felt removed from pretty much everything. And yet, from the time he was six or seven years old, he had planned on trying to become England's greatest poet. He had planned on trying to write England's greatest epic. And so this was not some, oh, now I guess I'll go back to poetry. He had always planned on this. But Paradise Lost is written in that moment. It's written in the moment of, for him, a tragic collapse of the Republican experiment in England. And it's also written in this moment of a tragic personal loss of his own sight. That's how we start with Paradise Lost. It's no small feat to then say he wrote 12 books this way over the next decade or so, published in 67 and again in 74. It's no small thing to just say that, oh, he tried to work on this little poem in the corner or this little poem. This poem is profoundly impacted by his own historical conditions, his own psychological conditions. But above and beyond anything else that Milton was, Milton was devoutly Christian. He was devoutly Christian, and that might seem to be weird to jive with someone who defended regicide, and he would absolutely discuss that with you, and you could read his tracks in his letters in which he does just that with people. Um, he, thought that, he thought that human government, human tyranny on the earth was an offense to God, and so he thought it was just in the eyes of God to remove such governments and to topple such thrones. So he would make a claim that his devotion was not undermined by his politics. Other people obviously might disagree, but the thing you can't take away from Milton is that above and beyond everything else, including his own innate genius or his own unbelievable learning and education, he was devoted to God. He was devoted to his faith, and he believed everything. He was a scripturalist. He thought bishops were the worst thing that had ever happened. He thought the Roman Catholic Church was a joke. He was a radical Protestant, um, but that made him a radical scripturalist. He thought that the only things you could know about God were the things God had revealed in the scripture, and anything else was just wordplay. It was just games that smart people or people who tried to have power over others were playing to try to establish those false monarchies over the human soul. And he thought Scripture alone could have any bearing. Scripture alone could have any power to compel obedience. Scripture alone was given by God. Scripture alone was the only thing you could know about God. Scripture alone. He was a scripturalist, front, back, and beginning and end. And so it might seem obvious in that light that for Milton, the great epic he's going to write for England is not English. Uh, when he was young, he had planned that that great epic would be Arthurian. He planned that he would write the great epic on King Arthur because that is the preternatural, that is the primeval myth of England, right? And so he had always planned that it was going to be an Arthur epic that he would write at the end of his life, that it would be his magnum opus, as it were. But by the time all of this life and this living and this experience happens. He gets to this place and he's setting forth toward this epic and he decides he's going to write the ultimate epic. And he's going to write the one that begins at the beginning. In fact, he's going to write the one that begins before the beginning. He's going to write the epic of humankind. He's not just going to write the epic for England. So he decides that his subject matter will not be the nation. And you can imagine why. He is so profoundly dismayed 
at the failure of the nation to take up its ability to govern itself. He is so profoundly dejected about that corruption of powers that you could see him moving almost away from the nationalistic hope or obsession or spotlight, which usually you write a great epic to found or to justify the power of a nation. You could see he's not going to write an English epic to justify or empower Charles II. Instead, he's thinking about the things that are true of all human beings. He's thinking about power, corruption, sin, redemption. He's thinking about the things that really matter. In his blindness, he's left with him, himself, and God. So he decides his epic will be about the fall of mankind. And in the first lines, the famous lines, I've had my students recite these or memorize these. I just recently assigned this, and I said, I will drop your two worst quizzes if you will memorize the first 26 lines of Paradise Lost. Now, I didn't think anybody would take me up on that because, like, nobody memorizes anything anymore, right? People think of memorization as, like, a form of abuse or something. Um, nevertheless, I said that, and I said it a couple weeks ago. And uh, what was it? Just a few days ago, um, I had a student come up to me and say, uh, Professor Woods, that's what they call me in my other life. Professor Woods, I am ready. And I didn't really know what she was talking about. I thought, like, did I forget we had office hours? I just, I didn't know idea what she was saying. And, and there's still people in the class. People are starting to leave. She goes, I'm ready. And I'm like, that's good. You know, it's important to be ready in life. You know, she's like a graduating senior. I'm thinking, yeah, you're ready for the world. You know, I don't know. Carpe diem. I don't know what she wanted from me. And then she starts saying of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. And I was like, whoa. And there was a few students around who were waiting for office hours, and they were like, whoa. And she proceeded without stumbling once to recite in total the first 26 lines of Paradise Lost. These are the lines she recited. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. With loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning, how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Or if Sion Hill delight thee more, and Silo's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song, that with no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And chiefly thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart, and pure. Instruct me, for thou knowest, thou from the first wast present, and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like, setst brooding on the vast abyss, and madest it pregnant. What in me is dark, illumine, what is low, raise and support, that to the height of this great argument I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to man.
Needless to say, I dropped her two lowest quizzes. Phenomenal lines. First 26 lines. Milton Speaker says his goal is to justify the ways of God to men. Just think about what people think about God. Just think about it. the average person go over the street. What do you think about God? You know, what do you think? About, what do you think about the God of the Bible? You asking that question? I don't know. You know, he, well, I don't know about that thing about sin. You know, I don't, I don't know that hell thing. I don't know. I don't know. It seems kind of like a tyrant. I don't know. It doesn't seem very fair. The God I would like, the God I believe in, my God, the God, my me, me, my God, my God is nice. That that not the God of the Bible doesn't seem like that. If you ask the average person what they think of the God of the Bible, you could see maybe why Milton's speaker might think it's worth justifying the ways of God to men. It might be the last thing that people are able to do to themselves that's to justify God's ways. How many times do you see a natural disaster and people say, finally, now we can let go of this ancient belief in a benevolent and kind God? You see this just catastrophic display of human loss and suffering and people say finally finally we can now now these foolish christians can finally let go of this absurd fiction that there is this all-powerful and all-loving god who somehow allows people to suffer and die this way you could see you could see that it would be an interesting and perhaps worthwhile project to actually attempt to justify the ways of god to men. It might actually be the barrier to why people do not obey or follow this God. It might be why there are so few Christians. It might be why people leave the church because they cannot justify, they cannot understand, they cannot connect with the ways of God in their lives and in their experience. Milton takes this utterly seriously and it motivates the entire project. But boy is that bold. Let me remind you this man is a scripturalist. He thinks the only thing you can really know is whatever the scripture says. So how then can he justify adding to the scripture by writing a poem about what the scripture already discusses? I mean, it's an extraordinary act of hubris taken from one perspective. How could you? How, how, why didn't we just need the Bible? Why did we need the Bible plus John Milton to understand the ways of God to men? You could see the pushback would come pretty easily. And yet Milton is all aware of all sorts of contradictions as people will think them through as he engages this project. Nonetheless, he says he's going to attempt things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. No one's ever tried this before but he is going to try this. And yet, he invokes the heavenly muse, the Holy Spirit. He asks for divine aid. He does it several times, actually, throughout the poem. He says, these things are too great for me. He says that he needs help to see these things. And in fact, he nods to his blindness when he describes what in me is dark illumine. This doubles then as his blindness, but also his fallenness. Milton's a sinner. Milton is someone who needs saved. Milton is a fallen human being. How could a fallen human being whose vision is clouded, let's talk about spiritual vision, is clouded by his own sin possibly justify God to anybody? How could he even understand God clearly if he himself is corrupted? Milton is a scripturalist. He believes that he is a sinner. He doesn't believe he has perfect vision. 
So even though his blindness is one way of highlighting this fact, he still has a lot to deal with here and a lot to grapple with here. Now, I'm going to be talking about Milton's speaker, that is the person actually speaking in the poem. And we don't want to just say it's Milton himself all the time. This is an important thing. But I'll explain a little bit more of that later. What I'm going to do, and this is an introduction to sort of how the poem gets going. What I'm going to do in the next segment is I'm going to talk about Satan. And the reason I'm going to talk about Satan is because that's the first thing Milton talks about. The first thing Paradise Lost does is it goes to hell. And I'm going to talk about why that is and why that's interesting. So hopefully, just kind of wetted the palate a little bit, got a little interested in maybe why this poem is worth thinking through, and then you'll join us in this next time when we talk about Satan and what is it, what is it to be in this place and think through what Satan thinks through and, and to explore the satanic mind. That could be a dangerous project, but it is the first thing Milton undertakes in this great epic. Thank you for joining me on this introduction to Paradise Lost, and I hope you will join us again for the next one. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe. And your sweet sweet grandmother old grandmother Eunice Eunice should definitely subscribe until next time may you live well think well and love well Godspeed